CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. And if you're listening to us, we are in your ears on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We have a jam-packed Friday show for you. But we're going to kick it off with a little update from Celsius. Adam, what do you got? Thanks, Jen. It feels like deja vu, but we are, in fact, talking about Celsius first again, this time with a little twist. In a new report, two unnamed sources told the Financial Times that at least some of the solvency issues buffeting the now-in-bankruptcy crypto yield giant originates with a company called Equities First. According to the report, Celsius began borrowing from Equities First in 2019 using crypto to over-collateralize their loans. The trouble began two years later, in 2021, when Celsius was asked to repay a loan in order to get their collateral back, only to be told that the collateral could not be returned in, quote, a timely basis, according to the report. Equities First is currently repaying Celsius some $5 million per month, but at that rate, things could take a while. The debt is made up of $361 million in cash and nearly $79 million worth of Bitcoin. Well, we've been talking about Celsius recently quite a lot, and it's interesting to see some details come out about not necessarily the situation that they're in today, but sort of some of the events that led up to this situation we're facing today. What do you think? Is this good news, bad news, something else entirely, or are we just gaining more information to kind of a messy situation? To me, I just first thought was, this sounds stressful. Imagine owing someone $500 million. That's, uh, I don't want to owe somebody five bucks, let alone 500 million. So that was my <laughs> first thought when I saw the story. But it is interesting to see Celsius on the other foot, right? They are owed money here as opposed to owing people money. And we have a lot of information now about the hole in their balance sheets, reportedly about $1.2 billion that they are missing. And this seems to be a large chunk of it, right? Around $500 million that they are owed by this lending firm, just based on bad deals from years ago. I think the bull market showed that a lot of people were really interested in getting more money. They're hyper leveraging. And then when things started cracking, people were not ready. And it can be easy to forget that midway through this last bull market, we actually had a slowdown, right? June through September of 2021 actually slowed down quite a bit. We saw Bitcoin hit a low of about $28,000 during that period. Right now, obviously, it's much lower. It does really seem like we're entering into a bear market. But even during last summer, people thought that was the beginning of the bear market. Of course, it went back up to about $69,000 in November of 2021. So you can see how some of these financial firms got caught in that middle period. That seems to be what happened here. We don't have that confirmed, but 
If you look at the timeline and look at token prices, it sort of makes sense that this firm got caught in that middle period. They owed a lot of money. They were probably using that collateral for their own lending purposes, and then they got stuck with it. $5 million a month is not enough to pay this off in time. And as Celsius goes through Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and people are going to start getting some of that funding back, they're going to be pulling more from this firm itself. Just another case study here within this larger Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing for Celsius, which itself was a huge behemoth within this space beforehand. So Nali, throw it up to you for your take. Yeah, exactly. Well, and what's interesting here is all of us learning that Celsius first borrowed from Equities First in 2019. And, you know, they were asked to pay back, to get back their collateral. And now that's stuck in limbo. And I'm getting like some major 2008 vibes because like all this market trouble is slowly revealing to us some of the inner workings of all these like giant financial intermediaries that have emerged in the crypto world. Like things most new and maybe small retail investors won't find out unless stuff like this happens. Just like after 2008, I remember we were all forced to learn what a collateralized debt obligation was. I can't even say it even now. So if nothing else, I feel like all of this that's happening, it's kind of good for crypto in the long term because we're seeing these problems now and hopefully can do a better job, not only for regulators to be looking at, but also a better job of self-regulating going forward. At least that is my hope <laughs> for, for crypto at large. Because it's bad news every day. There has to be a silver lining, right, Jen? That was rather optimistic, Sandali. That was very optimistic of you on the regulator part. I don't know if I <laughs> share that optimism. It seems like we're seeing these stories unfold every day. And there's a lot of talk about it, but I don't see any action. It's interesting to see some of the context into what's been going on with Celsius behind the scenes. Will, you said you were stressed out about that $500 million debt. For me, the stressful part of this story was imagine going back to get the collateral you put up for a loan and then hearing that actually you can't get that back. Adam, I saw your hand go up. My question kind of comes back to you, though. It's for people who had funds with Celsius. What does this mean for them? What should they take away from these stories that we bring up on the show every day? Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing for people to remember, and it's hard to see it at times where things are good, and it's easy to see it when times are bad. So it's important to learn the lessons when times are bad. Whenever you're looking at something that looks like it's too good to be true of free money, it probably is too good to be true. And that, I think, is what caught up a lot of people in this. You know, we have this thing called recency bias, right? Which is we expect what's been happening recently to continue happening because it's been happening recently, right? And so that means that when things change, they can change really, really fast. So when you're looking at these types of projects, you know, ultimately you're looking at projects that were promising to take your money and at very little or no risk to yourself, turn it into more money. And that's almost always not something that works over the medium or long term. So I think that's kind of the lesson to take away. I want to turn to the Equities First, though. You know, they have a statement on their website that says Equities First is an institutional investment firm that specializes in long-term asset-backed financing. And that is interesting because Equity First is not a crypto company at all, as far as I can tell. It appears they did deal in crypto assets from a collateralization standpoint, but didn't do much beyond that. So that also is a very interesting thing to me about this story is that I think this is the first non-crypto land player who we've seen behave in this fashion. And from, again, we don't know everything about what's going on in this deal, but from the way that that deal looks like it worked, it looks like this lender was having problems with solvency themselves long before crypto did. And it's part of what caused this manifestation of it in crypto. Sindali, you get the last word on this one. 
Thanks, Adam. No, I just wanted to kind of clear up what I meant about the regulators, and that's exactly that. We're seeing sort of crypto spill over into stuff that our current financial regulators actually understand and are familiar with. And, you know, can hop in and go, oh, okay, I don't need to go to a blockchain seminar for this. Like I, I can, you know, see how my rules apply to these new changes that are happening. And I think that is what's important here, just from a policy perspective. But I think we can move on to the next story. And oh, I have the next one. So crypto hedge fund defines capital wants to distance itself from troubled rival fund. Three Arrows Capital, or 3AC. A statement posted to Defiance Capital's official Twitter account on Friday tried to clarify its relationship with 3AC. It says Defiance is a separate and independent fund set up in 2020, and none of its assets under management were raised by 3AC, its founders, or any of its affiliates. This is, of course, not the first firm that has tried to distance itself from 3AC. We saw TPS Capital, which called itself the over-the-counter trading arm of Three Arrows Capital, say earlier this month that it's an independent firm with separate management. We also saw similar statements from Avalanche and DYDX. So just to go into the statement a little bit, Define Statement says that the fund's founder, Arthur Chung, had no visibility on Three Arrow Capital's financial statements or conditions until the news broke in June that it was in trouble. But then the statement goes on to say that Defiance was materially affected and prejudiced by the liquidation of Three Arrows Capital and that it's committed to doing everything to try and recover the assets affected. I want to know what you guys make of this. So I'll throw it to you first, Jen. I saw your hand. Yeah, so it's interesting that all these firms are really trying to separate themselves from Three Arrows Capital. There was a report that came out by Blockworks, I think it was about a week ago, that kind of started to unpack this unclear relationship between the two firms. So the report says Defiance Capital was incubated by 3AC and the firms had a number of co-investments together. It also said that it appears that 3AC played a big role in the launch of Defiance Capital, providing middle office and back office support and consulting on hiring. That seems pretty intertwined to me. And the fact that that information is now out there through verified sources in the media compared with this tweet that's really trying to kind of separate the two companies is just feels a little bit odd to me. I mean, I'll pick it up just, from there. The, the whole situation is a little odd, right? And I think it should be because we don't know where all this money went to and where it's going to go in the future, right? Fears Capital was huge. And it's very clear that they were not operating as a standard hedge fund, let alone any one with like rational reasoning is at this point. I mean, they were taking out huge loans from multiple players using collateral over and over and over again, pledging to different places. And that's why you end up in a place where a lot of firms are materially affected because the collateral that was put on the table could be seized by different counterparties, many different counterparties. And the ones who got it first are the ones who are basically okay. Maybe took a little bit of a hair trim, but the other ones who weren't there fast guess what? They don't have any of that money and they're going to be going into chapter 11, trying to seize whatever Three Arrows Capital still has on its books. And the stuff it has on its books is not that great because it's a lot of VC equitying with very long time horizons. And who even knows if that equity is worth anything in the next few years? It could be worth absolutely nothing. We just don't know at this point. So the firms that really went out in this situation, the ones who were able to grab the Bitcoin or the stable coins that were put up as collateral in the first place. So 
For Defiance Capital, this will be very interesting. They're definitely a well-known VC firm within the space, operating a lot within DeFi circles. And yes, it's a huge knock to them. It's not surprising though. I think we're going to see many more of these. We're also going to see some, just some hedge funds and some VC firms quietly disappear. I think a lot of people were hit by 3AC. I think a lot of people were caught up in the cult of Suzu and Kyle Davies. And we're going to see that continue to play out over the next few months. Adam, I'll throw it up to you for your take. Yeah, I think the really interesting part for me about all of this has more to do with how much we didn't know and how much that's in direct conflict with much of the ethos of the Web3 space. Web3 really is about taking out the sort of privileged middlemen who typically obscure a lot of things. And you, you kind of needed them in old systems because you had to rely on trust. But in these new smart contract driven systems, sure, they have problems and technical challenges and stuff like that. But ultimately, you should never have this type of problem. Ultimately, all of the trades that are being made, whether we know who's making them or not, there should be no possibility of, you know, like uh, rehypothecating an asset, lending it to somebody else, and then using it as collateral for somebody else in something else. Because again, we have smart contracts. They can custody this stuff, which requires, which doesn't require you to actually put it at risk. And we've seen protocols like Maker, and we've seen other protocols that have seemed like they've survived this because they required that type of thing. So again, when we look at kind of the space and we look at all of these different funds that are out there, these are funds who are using sort of the edifice and the speculative potential of these different projects and these different technologies as a way to justify an investment thesis that actually is very, very similar in many ways to sort of the traditional way we do things. And this blow up, I think, is really kind of iconic of that. So it is interesting to see this come out. You know, I, I imagine that this company and many others are going through something similar to what if you were like a subsidiary or in some way related to Lehman Brothers in 2008. It feels like there's probably a similar relationship there where Three Arrows Capital at this point has already become an infamous company that is going to have the stink of like gigantic fail on it for a very long time to come. And if you're somebody who's still in business and has tangible you know, connections to that ecosystem, then it's uh, not a great time to be that. So I'm not surprised by those moves. So layoffs have come to JPEG land. OpenSea announcing that 20% of their staff is going to be laid off due to macro uncertainty and just a wider depression among the space. Quote, Devin Finzer, who is the CEO of OpenSea, said, the reality is we have entered an unprecedented combination of crypto winter and broad macroeconomic instability. And we need to prepare the company for the possibility of a prolonged downturn. They went on to say that they want to prepare for the next five years, make sure that the company is set up for success. OpenSea, of course, is, if not the largest, one of the largest NFT marketplaces. Uh, they plans of maybe even going into an IPO during the bull market. That has not happened to date, but they are basically a household name. They really got some escape velocity during the bull market. So this is a pretty big news to see 20% of their staff layoff. Obviously, it comes after layoffs within mining companies, comes up with layoffs for Coinbase, layoffs for lots of different crypto exchanges like Gemini. So this is just falling on the heels of that. But it is the largest one I've heard so far among different NFT platforms. Jen, I want to throw this one down to you, get your take on it. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about this. During the bull, people were hiring a lot, spending a lot of money, and, and not really preparing for this bear cycle that was inevitable. I think... We've seen over the past year or so, OpenSea has really had that first mover advantage. They've been the NFT marketplace, although there have been like so many issues, right? There, but there hasn't been a competitor that has been able to touch them. I think now that we're seeing this 20% layoff, they're having to scale down. I wonder what departments they're looking to lay off in. I think over this next bear cycle is when we might see 
a competitor build something that can really give OpenSea a run for their money. And I look forward to that. I look forward to see what people are building during the bear to solve some of the issues that we've seen come up with OpenSea. And I hope that during the next bull cycle, there are some platforms out there that can give OpenSea a run for their money and give NFT holders some more value, some more protection on their platforms. But Adam, I'm going to toss it up to you. OpenSea is an interesting company. It's a company that's been around for a while at this point, and it's a company that's raised so much money and had such a big impact on the space that it's a part of, that it's really not so much that it's a space that it's a part of. It's more like it is the space, and then there's this sort of tangential 20% of action that happens kind of spread off across the other you know, 10,000 platforms. I'm not actually sure what the numbers are. So I think that that right there is interesting. But what it means is that if you're OpenSea right now, or if I'm OpenSea right now, right, I'm not thinking about what, how am I going to survive the next two years. I'm thinking about how do I maximally position myself during this time so that I can be in, continue to be in this dominant position, right? Really, OpenSea to me is the Facebook of its sort of space, and it will require a substantial tactical error on the part of the incumbent in order to actually dislodge them from that seat. And until then, until they actually make a tangible mistake that's like a significant one that impacts hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, worth of funding, like they're doing fine. So this move I see really as positional uh, and almost entirely about taking advantage of the fact that when you hire a lot of people fast in order to stock up, a lot of times you don't need all of those people and you find that out. So this actually might just be a pretense for them to sort of reduce headcount and focus on kind of the people who have proven most valuable to the organization. So that's how I kind of look at it. I'm kind of curious for your perspective on it, though, Sundali. How are you thinking about OpenSea these days? Adam, that was pretty much exactly what I was going to say, that they might be using this as an excuse to sort of reorganize, take a step back and build a strategy for how they're going to position for the next, I don't know, five to 10 years and even more. Because, I mean, let's be honest, NFTs were kind of the hype around it was dying down a little bit even before this big crash. And of course, the crash hasn't helped. But NFTs in particular have a chance to make it all through this just because they can sort of form their own markets. They have these utilities and applications we have only just begun to explore with, with the metaverse and everything that's coming up. So I think that, yeah, again, this is a very strategic move and it's a perfect time for them to do this. So I'm looking forward to, you know, how they try not to mess up going forward. Isn't it so sad? that we're saying like, oh, maybe they're using this opportunity to finally think ahead as if no one was thinking ahead, just like running around with their heads chopped off during the bull market. I would like to point out though, that the mainstream is still not here. So there is still a big chance for another player to build something that is more intuitive for non-crypto native audiences and kind of come out of nowhere and gobble up that audience. Because the audience on OpenSea, while it is the biggest one for an NFT platform, it's not that big in relation to how many people are online. And so I think when people get more into Web3 and more into NFTs, it'll be interesting to see if OpenSea remains on top or who takes over. But Adam, I saw your hand go up. I just have to emphasize again, uh, at least from where I'm sitting, like I think it will be hard because you get this phenomenon in crypto projects where you have basically the first kind of platform that breaks through on a particular idea, they tend to remain the incumbent. And that's because something like OpenSea was built at a time when it was not at all obvious that there was a lot of money available in NFTs and that that was a sector that was really going to take off. And OpenSea does primarily still have that early adopter market, but that early adopter market is also the market that spends the vast majority of the money on NFTs in sort of the current environment. 
Now, you're correct. There are lots and lots of very well-funded competitors who are coming out with things that are significantly easier to use than OpenSea and that abstract a lot of the stuff away. But just like Bitcoin has many sort of also-rans and Ethereum has many sort of also-rans, you run into this problem where you have the choice to either use the incumbent platform or to use one of the many challengers. And all of the challengers have different advantages that they do better than the, than the incumbent. But you wind up still with this split marketplace where you know half the people are going to the incumbent and then the other half are split between all of the other very well-funded platforms that are out there, which means most of them probably won't survive. So this may be different. Obviously, we're talking about a platform here rather than a protocol. But you know, outside of places like exchanges, we've seen this status be remarkably sticky, in my opinion. Go I'm just ahead. curious to see what the crypto bear market combined with macro downturn does to NFT space itself. So obviously, OpenSea is pretty dominant. But when the pie just shrinks so dramatically, it could get pretty bad. And the last corollary we have to this is 2017-2018, when ICOs just plummeted, they died off. And they went down 99% and then down another 99%. And does that happen to the JPEG market? And what does that mean for OpenSea? Um, even the CEO cited that, right? They said that it's going to be a bear market and then there's also a macro downturn. So it's new level of difficulty compared to 2017, 2018. 2017, 2018 was already rough enough. So I'm interested to see what this does to that market and then how OpenSea responds. But Jen, I'll throw it to you for our last topic. Yeah, I just want to add on to what you're saying. I think that the future of NFTs is not in people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for JPEGs, right? And that's what's happening right now on OpenSea. And as NFTs become more mainstream, I don't think that's going to be their use case. And maybe there is another incumbent that pops up and offers that use case that we don't, we don't know what that is yet because, you know, we're just still so early. But let's go on over to South Park. It is, it's Friday. We're going into the weekend. We're going to end the show off with something totally insane. So the new South Park movie is out. I didn't realize they were coming out with a new movie, but it is on a streaming service. It's just one really long swing at crypto. So the film pinpoints a lot of celebrities who endorse exchanges and projects during the bull run, like Matt Damon, Larry David, and Reese Witherspoon. In the movie, okay, there's this drought in South Park. It's making everyone go crazy. And then someone comes up with a plan. They say, why don't we just replace water with urine? I can't believe we're talking about this on the show today, but that's what happens in you the movie. You picked the topic. Before... <laughs> I know. It's Friday. It's Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so before, like we go into our dis... <laughs> before we go into the discussion, let's just remind everyone, let's look at one of the ads that are being made fun of in the new South Park movie. Let's look at Crypto.com's ad that featured Matt Damon. Who do we have sound? I don't know. I, can, I don't think I we have audio audio on it. Yeah, Will's going to give us. He just says some fortune favors a bold like forty times, and then he just yeah. looks yes. into the camera, and it works, right? I bought like ten Bitcoin after I saw this. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the whole thing is just. I watched some of the South Park stuff, and I'm not going to lie; it was funny, but it was a little jump the shark esque, right? Like they were kind of reaching for it. I'm all for making crypto jokes, though. I think that's literally what crypto Twitter is about. Is just making fun of each other in the most aggressive and mean-spirited way possible. And whoever survives typically survives the bear market. So South Park, I think, needs to step it up. That is my takeaway. But Adam, will throw it to you. Yeah, I love South Park. South Park's one of my kind of all-time favorite shows. For a long time, they've been very uh, fearless about going after sort of sacred cows. And I actually think over the last number of years, South Park has significantly scaled that back and has gone after safer topics. And that's what I would characterize this at. 
uh, as you said, Will, you know, it's a little bit of a jump the shark thing. Like, and they actually already did an episode in the very last season on the Matt Damon ad. So it's interesting that they wound up blowing that into the thing. There's this whole episode where Cartman goes around talking about how everybody lost their money because they believed Matt, they listened to Matt Damon when he said, fortune favors the bold. And so there's this like entire episode about it already. So it's interesting to see them go after it in a longer form, but it's not ultimately surprising. And I think the thing that I hope for is that it's as entertaining as they have been in the past because it can be pretty funny when they get to be a little bit mean. Anyways, Sundali, what do you think? I don't know. I love this. I mean, it's self-park, right? They, they, push, <laughs> they push it as far as it goes, and it's totally absurd. And that's the whole point of, you know, trying to, if they can sell you crypto, they can sell you pee. That's, <laughs> that's the principle behind it. It's true. <laughs> I kind of binge-watched all the little clips with the celebrity commercials just making fun of God. They're, they're awful. But, um, I mean, let's be honest. Celebrities shill things all the time, especially with Super Bowl. They're literally hired to appear in commercials to sell things. The difference here was that they weren't selling an energy drink or potato chips. They were saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool to buy crypto and join legions of visionaries? And the messaging literally was, if you don't, you're kind of stupid and you'll miss out. Look at all this epicness that you'll miss out on the next you know, plane or, or climbing Mount Everest. I don't know. And I'm kind of glad that they're being called out for this. I mean, you and I may not be crazy about Matt Damon, but there are people out there who really admire some of these actors and celebrities. Look at the Kardashians, right? Their overpriced makeup collection sell out in like minutes and people will buy it. Like, what were you thinking, Matt Damon? <laughs> Buying $1,000 in Bitcoin and ending up with like, I don't know, 300 because of Larry David? It, it's just not a good look. And you know, at least you can return your makeup back to Sephora or try out some samples. It's not the case with crypto. This was, I think, a little bit needed. Someone had to address it in an absurd, humorous kind of way. And I'm glad that it's South Park. It, people are going to watch this and go like, okay, maybe I won't do that next time. I don't know, Jen. I think that this is just indicative of where we are with crypto, right, to be featured on South Park, it's kind of like a cultural moment. And I know the Matt Damon commercial, I mean, the Matt Damon mention came out in prior South Park episodes. But I think this just speaks to the fact that crypto is becoming more and more mainstream. The fact that it made it into the South Park movie, it was a common thread, common theme throughout the South Park movie. I think that's a really good sign. Like crypto is becoming really aligned with what's happening in culture and what we're talking about in culture. And I think it's a great sign for what's going on. I will say, though, all of these celebrities who came out and were endorsing crypto during the bull market have gone really quiet. And I think that right now there's a really big opportunity for those celebrities and influencers who actually believe in crypto, which maybe none of them did. And that's just becoming more clear now to take this opportunity to educate their audiences. And so I think there's that missed opportunity and all of these celebrities we spoke about last year should be educating their audiences right now. There's a really great opportunity for them to do that with the brands that they've partnered with as well. But Adam, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I'll just say this. We live in a time of incredible mania. We live in a, in a time where everything has become a casino and where there really are no, as we talked about earlier this week, any safe places to hide with your money. So on the one hand, yes, this is all madness and everybody who's behaving in a way that you know falls into this mania are behaving in ways that is mad. But at the same time, if that's the world that you live in, it's hard to hold it against people. So I come back to that, you know, again, like cryptocurrency and all of these things, 
They're about presenting forms of unstoppable competition. They're about presenting better options to people so that they can make choices within their lives that are good for them rather than good for some, you know, anonymous collective that they might be a part of. So for all of that, you know, the bear market's still here, but I think the hope and the potential for crypto really remains very strong, even in these difficult times. So Jen, I think that's about it for us today. What do you think? What a positive way to end the show with that final word. I loved it. We're going to take a weekend, maybe watch the South Park movie. And we're going to be back on a Monday. So thank you, everyone, for watching on Coindesk TV. Thank you for listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. So many awesome podcasts there. Listen to us on the weekend, you know, while you're having that lazy Sunday. I'm Jen Sanasi. On today's show, we had Will Foxley, Sandali Handagama, and Adam B. Levine. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.